All right. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Book of 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 1296. And I want to I want to start this morning with uh, a tried and true icebreaker. If you ever need one of these at your next uh, you know work event or something, you can use this one. Here it is. What would you do if you knew that today was your last day on earth? If you knew that today was your last day on earth, what would you do? The way people answer that question reveals a lot about their personality. Some people would, would want to go. They would want to cram as much into the day as they could. They would try to see as many people, go to as many places. If they could find some way to get to Disney World, they, w- they would do it. Um, others would be more internal. They would, they would want to stay home, see their family, eat some ice cream, uh, look at old pictures, Uh, listen to the birds in the backyard, that kind of thing. Maybe they would call up one or two people, somebody they haven't talked to in a while. And then others of you, and this is where I, this is the category I fall into, you're too busy asking, well, why is it the last day? (laughs) What's happening? Is it everybody's last day? Uh, If I go into a lot of credit card debt, is that going to be left to my kids or is that going to be wiped out because the world's coming to an end? That kind of thing. You're, You're crippled by all the other questions that you have in your mind, so you can't possibly choose what you would want to do. In our text this morning, we're going to hear Peter tell us that the end of all things is at hand. And then he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to tell us some things that we ought to do in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. So I want you to be on the lookout for that as we read. We're going to begin in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, and we're going to read to verse 11. So let's read together. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God... Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pause there and pray together. Lord, we pray, I pray this morning that You would indeed help us to have this perspective, this mindset that we're called to have in Your Word, that the end of all things is at hand. I pray that You would help us to understand what that means and understand what you expect us to do in light of it. So, Lord, help us uh, not only to understand, but also to have the will to obey this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, one of the first things we need to address is the fact that Peter says here, the end of all things is at hand, and he said that 2,000 years ago. So, one temptation people have had is to say, okay, well, Peter was, was confused, right? Because he said the end of all things is at hand. That was 2,000 years ago. Obviously, the end of all things was not at hand. And Peter's not the only one. There are many other New Testament writers, even Jesus himself. What did Jesus say when he began preaching? The very first thing he said was, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. So, uh, so some people have looked at that and said, okay, Peter 
Jesus, Paul, John, all these other New Testament guys, they were confused. They thought that, that the end was close, that the last day was about to take place, that Jesus would return very quickly. If that's the way we take this, then the confusion is on our part, not on theirs. Uh, it is a, a, a oversimplification to think that when Peter said the end of all things is at hand, that he meant that Jesus is about to come back next week. So um, I want to try to use an illustration. There are a few ways we could try to tackle this, but I want to, I want to try an illustration to see if this will help us sort of make sense in our own minds of, of how Peter can say 2,000 years ago the end of all things is at hand. So imagine in this illustration you and I are, uh, are in a car, and, and I'm driving, and we're driving straight toward a cliff. I mean, we're going to go over the cliff's edge, and then whew, however far down, we'll see what happens. So we're driving, and I'm just pedal to the metal, flooring it. And right as we're getting close to the cliff, I scream out, the cliff is at hand. And you, you, what do you do? You brace for impact, right? You think, all right, this is it. We're going over the edge. And then right at the last moment, I jerk the wheel, and we don't go over the cliff. But now I, I don't stop driving. Instead of driving toward the cliff, now we're driving next to the cliff. We're driving parallel to the cliff. And let's say that we drive another two hours parallel to the cliff. Question, was it true when I said the cliff is at hand, was I being truthful? Yes, I was, because we were about to go over the cliff's edge, right? What about during those two hours where we're now driving along the cliff's edge? Would it be accurate for me to say at any point in those two hours, the cliff is at hand? Yes, because at any moment I could jerk the wheel over and we go over the edge. Uh, that, I, I hope, will help us understand what Peter means when he says the end of all things is at hand. It's as if he's saying we have reached the cliff of history. Everything necessary for the end to come has already happened. Jesus the Messiah, whom God had, had long promised in the Old Testament, He has arrived. He has fulfilled His ministry. He has suffered and died on the cross. God has raised Him from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He has poured out the gift of the Spirit on His people. So every promise has been kept except for one, that He's going to come back. The only thing left is for Him to return, and no one knows the day or the hour. It could be any moment. So history has been at the cliff's edge for 2,000 years. It was at the cliff's edge 2,000 years ago when Peter said the end of all things is at hand, and we've been driving along the cliff's edge for 2,000 years ever since. Peter wants us to live with that truth in mind, that at any moment God's going to jerk the wheel over and, and history is going to go over the edge into eternity. One of the primary things that I want us to notice, though, is how ordinary Peter's instructions are. In light of the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment and eternity could begin, we might expect Peter to say, okay, We've got, to, we've got to do some radical things in light of that. We have, to, we have to have this radical, these radical feats of devotion to Christ because eternity could begin at any moment. Instead, what he does is he urges us to pursue virtues and practices that are strikingly ordinary. Things like praying and loving one another and showing hospitality to one another and serving one another. A commentator named Juan Sanchez put it this way, living with the end in view is not a call to radical Christianity. 
It is a call to normal Christianity. It's not a call to radical Christianity. It's a call to normal Christianity. So how should we live knowing that the end of all things is at hand? Or if we were to phrase it in a way that might feel a little more relevant to the past few months, when, when you're living in the middle of a pandemic and it feels like the whole world is tearing at the seams, everything's turned upside down, what should we do? How should we then live? Peter urges us to do four things. First, he says in the middle of verse 7, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In other words, be level-headed. Be, be rational. A lot of people, when they think about the end of the world, it makes them go crazy, right? And that's, that's been the case forever. Go back and read Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, and you get the idea that there were some people who said, okay, well, the end could be at any moment. Jesus would come back, so no sense in going to work. Might as well quit my job, <laughs> mooch off other people for a while because no point in doing all that work when the end of all things is at hand. And so Paul has to write to them and say, no, 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 keep going to your job. Uh, he has to tell the church there, listen, if somebody's not willing to work, don't help them, that kind of thing. Um, on and on and on throughout history, people say, okay, this is the date when Jesus is coming back. And people lose their mind, right? What Peter says is keep your calm. Be self-controlled and be sober-minded. Be sensible and reasonable. That is how followers of Christ should think and act. Now, Peter's just told us in uh, the passage just before this that unbelievers... unbelievers are probably going to malign us if we don't join them in the same kind of sins that they find acceptable. So one temptation during this period of time when we're on the cliff's edge of history is to, to sort of be defensive, right? To constantly look for persecution around every corner and say, the world's out to get me. And what Peter says is, no, you need to be sober-minded. You need to be self-controlled. Notice, for the sake of your prayers, which I take him to mean... There are a lot of things that are out of your control. There are a lot of things that you can't, you can't manage it. You can't sort of bend it to work your way. But here is one thing that you can meaningfully do. You can pray. It's easy to become so fixated on the world, on all of our responsibilities and relationships within the world, and, and just on, you know, things, you know, entertainment, things that just sort of get our mind off of the world, that we simply neglect to pray. We neglect to have that sort of God-centered perspective. And I, I say that not to heap guilt on you. Um, all of us have times when we neglect prayer. So if I'm being very transparent with you, there are some weeks when I you know, come to Wednesday night or Sunday morning and I realize, you know what? I get up to pray here and I think I haven't prayed all week. Hadn't prayed a, a single time until I had to, right? And so maybe I'm imagining that you might experience a situation where if you're not like me and you're never, you know, put into a situation where you have to stand up in front of people and pray, you might not, you might go a few weeks and never, never pray. So I say that not because I'm, I'm speaking from a, a posture of someone who, well, I, I, I have managed this 
I've perfected this. I, I pray, you know, all the time, every morning, every evening, that kind of thing. I know, because I am a sinner just like you, that uh, it is easy to, to neglect prayer. And prayerlessness is a sign that I am not sensing my dependence on God. Prayer, lack of prayer is one of those kind of warning lights in our life that sort of starts blinking if we'll stop and notice it. And it's saying, hey, you know what? You're not, you're not realizing how dependent you are on God and you're not expressing that to Him. You're not thanking God for His goodness. You're not seeking His wisdom. You're not casting your cares upon Him. But when we remain mindful that we're on the edge of eternity, it should provoke us to prayer. So maybe right now you're sitting here and saying, okay, Matt, that, that warning sign has been blinking for a while and, and now I'm just now realizing it. Um, this is a call to do the ordinary thing that God tells us to do in light of the end of all things. One of the, one of the things I see that happen in my life sometimes and happen in the lives of people that I talk to is Sometimes what happens is we have such an elevated idea of what prayer is that we think we're not doing it when in reality we are. So here's what I mean by that. If, if I were to ask the question, when is the last time that I um, went into a, a private room all by myself, totally quiet, and I got down on my hands and knees and I folded my hands like this and I, you know, I bowed my head or whatever and, and did that, I don't know when the last time I did that is. But that's not what prayer has to be. Prayer can be that, but it doesn't have to be that. You can pray driving down the road. You can be in your car on the way to work. Uh, one of the things I think about a lot of times is, is singing. Singing is nothing more than, as long as we're singing you know, godly, Christ-centered songs, I'm not saying if you sing, there's a tear in my beer because I'm crying for you, dear, that's prayer. I'm saying if you, if you take a, a godly, biblical, Christ-centered song and you sing that to the Lord... That's prayer. So when we gather together on Sundays and we sing this, the power of the cross, right? We're, we're thanking God for that. We're, we're praising Him for that. So you can do that in your car. You can do that while you're cooking supper, while you're cutting the grass, whatever the case may be. The point is, this is one of the things Peter tells us to do in light of the end of all things, to, to keep our wits about us, to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that we may pray. The second thing he tells us to do, he says in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So, all of my points this morning are just, I'm ripping them straight out of the text. Keep loving one another earnestly. Anytime circumstances are difficult, whether it's because of persecution or because of some other kind of hardship, there is an increased opportunity for hurt feelings, for envy, for conflict. There's an opportunity for us to look around and say, well, that person has it easier than I do, right? And so maybe you've heard the saying, hurt people hurt people. And followers of Christ are not immune to that. It's why Peter urges us to keep loving one another earnestly. The word earnestly means that our love must be genuine and heartfelt. It's, it's possible on the one hand to, to just kind of do things for people without really in your heart loving them. But on the other hand, the word earnestly implies not only an intensity or a feeling of love, but also a persistence in the act of love. 
So in the same way that it's, it's possible to just kind of do this without feeling them, it's also possible to sort of feel without actually persisting in the acts of love. Now, Peter says, we do this, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And there's a, there's a few ways we could misunderstand that, but one way we could misunderstand that is to think that Peter's saying that we should sort of cover up sins. If we see something um, in someone else that we sort of covered up, we never bring it to light or we never call it out or correct it or anything like that. That is true sometimes, right? Sometimes you, you see a flaw in someone and the best thing to do is just not, not say anything. But the Bible's also really clear that there are some situations where it would not be the loving thing to, to cover up sin. So an example of this is Galatians 6 where, where Paul says, uh, Beloved, if, if anyone is, is caught in sin, is trapped in sin, you who are spiritual should correct them in a spirit of gentleness. So in other words, if you see someone who, it's not just a one-time flaw, it's not just they flew off the handle and lost their patience or something like that, but there is a consistent pattern of sin that you observe in their life. It is not loving to ignore that or to deny that. The loving thing, in fact, would be to go to them and say, hey, listen, I don't say this to, to you as someone who is perfect. Uh, I, I've tried to, you know, take the speck, to take the log out of my own eye, but I'm coming to you to say I, I see a speck in your eye as well. Another situation where it would not be loving to, to cover sin would be if there were some kind of, uh, if someone were committing a sin against someone that is harmful or abusive, it would not be loving either to the person who has sinned or to the victim of that sin to, to cover up that sin. When Peter says that love covers a multitude of sin, he's talking more about interpersonal conflict. He means that we don't go around magnifying the faults and flaws that we see in other people. We don't linger over the wrongs that people have done to us in the past. So there is this, this rec recognition that the church is, is inherently filled with flawed people. And that is not by accident, it is by design. What happens when flawed people are in proximity to one another? They're going to sin against one another, right? They're... they're Again, I'm not talking about criminal offenses. I'm not talking about abuse or anything like that. I'm just talking about interpersonal conflict. So uh, we recently uh, acquired a second cat at the Simmons residence. I'm not saying that Chad did it, but he is the prime suspect for who might have dropped this cat off at our house. And uh, our, both of our cats are out, outdoor cats, but they come inside uh, on occasion. And just, just yesterday morning, this thing happened, and I said, that'll preach. So here's what happened. OJ and Boots, they're, they're coming down the hall towards this corner. Neither one of them knows that the other cat is around the corner. And so they come around the corner, and what happens? They both sort of, you know, jump up, you know, bow up at each other and go to hissing at each other. And it's kind of like, you know, Rebecca was the one who observed it and told me about it. She said, one cat got startled and hissed, and then the other cat hissed back in retaliation. And I thought, that'll preach. Because humans do that too, right? Someone is rude to you, someone is, they say something ugly about you, they lose their patience with you, and uh, to say that love covers a multitude of sins means that I can't change what that person did to me, but what I can do is I can, I have a choice in how I respond to that offense. I can choose to, to treat them the way they treated me, I can choose to be rude or ugly or impatient in return, in which case... I then contribute to this sinful cycle 
in which they sin against me and then I sin back and then they sin back and it's just this cycle where we're retaliating, retaliating against each other. Genuine love says, no, I'm going to break the cycle. They treated me this way, but I'm not going to treat them the way they treated me. I'm going to treat them the way I would want them to treat me, with, with love. And so I return their, love, their, their hatred or evil or whatever, I return that with love, and it breaks the cycle. And so there's a, there's a commentator named Karen Jobes who, who put it this way. She said, by Peter's definition, love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling but means treating others in the Christian community in such a way as to promote unity and to avoid or overcome behaviors that destroy relationships. So the fact is that people sin against one another, and if we magnify, if we multiply that sin and return it back, it becomes this cycle and it becomes destructive. It becomes lethal. Love means not just having a feeling towards people, but it means that we choose to overcome sinful behaviors by returning them with love. So that's the second thing Peter tells us to do in light of the end of all things. Keep loving one another earnestly. When people sin against you, return that with love and keep doing it over and over persistently. The third thing he tells us to do, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I just want to keep bringing us back to this thought of how ordinary is this? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is what you are to do because the end of all things is at hand. Now, there were several reasons why Christians in the first century would rely on one another for hospitality. Um, for one thing... thing Churches did not have buildings like this one in which they could meet. There was not a, there was not a, a, a church building where everybody went on Sunday and they had you know, a big room and then they had little Sunday school rooms and that kind of thing. When you read the New Testament and the, there's some description of the church gathering, it's always in such and such's home, in this person's home or in that person's home. And so put yourself in the shoes of the person who had the home large enough to host the, ga the gathering of the church and think about how burdensome that might become week after week after week. Okay, I've got this huge crowd of people that are coming to my house today and seven days are going to be back. And who knows, the, the, they might be double the size next week. I don't know. In addition to that, um, you see in the New Testament how important eating Eating together was as an expression of fellowship. It still is today. Uh, if you invite someone into your home to eat with you, or if you say, hey, let me pay for your meal, or that sort of thing, that is a meaningful act of love and fellowship. And so the idea is, if you think about it on, on one hand, uh, sinful acts, they have the potential, the possibility of destroying community and destroying fellowship in the church. So that's why Peter says, keep loving one another earnestly because that covers a multitude of sins. Now, on a positive note, hospitality has a great potential to build community, to promote community. So in our context, we could apply this by saying that we should be open and generous with the things that we have. Um, we haven't yet reached the point where we have to, you know, rely on someone to, to allow us to meet in their home. But, 
You know, we have to be open and generous with the things that we have for the good of the church. So that may mean uh, a willingness to open your home to others, not necessarily to have the whole church gathering there, but just, you know, to promote unity, to, to invite someone over for a meal. It can mean being eager to share whatever resources you have uh, to help others and to help the church. I was thinking as I was getting ready, I mean, just yesterday morning, we had a hole in the parking lot that we fixed, and we had people who brought shovels and uh, sledgehammers and muscles. Uh, I mean, mostly me, but um, uh, we had somebody bring a tractor and dirt. You know, those are that's like a really practical thing of, I have this resource. I can, I can choose to say, no, you can't use it. I don't want it to possibly get messed up. Or there can be this openness that say, yeah, feel free. You can use it if it'll, if it'll help the church. Absolutely. That's an example of showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's not just saying, invite people over to have tea. It's whatever I have, if there's a way that I can use that to help other people, that's what it means to be hospitable. Um, so... Again, Peter is calling us to do something that's really ordinary. I was thinking about that this week. I thought um, many people are ready to make grand sacrifices. Um, I, I see that in my own heart sometimes where as a, as a husband and a father, the temptation is to say, oh, man, I would, I would do anything for my wife or my kids. You know, I would, I would lay down my life if I had to for them. And then occasionally I'll be convicted because I'll think I would be willing to make that grand sacrifice because that'd be a one-time thing and it'd be over. And everybody would say, wow, what a great guy Matt is. He laid down his life for his family. But what happens when I'm just sitting down to eat supper and Patrick comes up to me and says, I need to go poo-poo? Am I going to go to the bathroom with him and, and wipe his hiney? Because that's, that's what it means, right? Uh, so am I willing to make that big grand sacrifice that everybody would say, wow, or am I willing to make those day-to-day, -day uncomfortable, inconvenient, little micro-sacrifices that, that's a part of life? Same thing on a bigger scale in church. Many people would say, boy, you know, I, I sure would like to think that if it ever came down to it, I would lay down my life for Jesus if I had to. That would not be easy, right? But laying down your life is something you'd have to do once. What Peter is sort of inviting us to ask is, are you willing to lay down your comfort and your convenience, and not just to do it once, but to do it over and over and over? That's why he says, he reminds us to do it without grumbling, because it would be tempting to, to do those things, to make those sacrifices, but say, I'm not going to be happy about it, <laughs> to kind of grumble and complain about it, but, that, but that's not loving. We, we need to go about loving one another, not in a begrudging way, but in a joyful way. And we need to ask the Lord to help us to do that. So I want to commend uh, just a very practical exercise for you. Because when life gets difficult, when it gets overwhelming, the temptation is to turn inward, to, to curve in on ourselves. So here's a practical exercise. Next time you feel overwhelmed, next time you feel like things are not going well, like you're in over your head... Stop and ask yourself this question. Who can I help today in a tangible way? Um, who is someone that, that I can reach out to? Who is someone to whom I could send a text or write a note and say, I'm praying for you? 
that is a way that you can get outside of your own head and get outside of your own feelings. Living in light of the end of all things means that we cannot be so self-involved that we, we just sort of turn inward and say, nobody has it as bad as I do right now. We have to look around and see what others are going through. And we may, in our heart of hearts, feel like what they're going through is not as big a deal as what we're going through. But we're called to help others. We're called to keep loving one another earnestly. And we're called to show hospitality and openness and generosity, not only with our resources and our time, but even with our feelings, without grumbling. So that's the third thing Peter tells us to do. And then the fourth thing that he tells us to do in verse 10, he says, as each has received a gift, uh, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I want you to notice three times in this passage that Peter uses a, the phrase one another. Love one another, show hospitality to one another, serve one another, which means that you are called to love others and they're called to love you. You're called to show hospitality to others and vice versa. You're called to serve others and vice versa. Now back in verse 8, Peter said, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, which does not mean that loving one another is superior to the other two. You know, he's not saying Make sure you love other people, and then if you have time, show hospitality and serve. He means that showing hospitality and serving are ways that you love one another earnestly. So showing hospitality, serving others are ways we demonstrate the kind of love that covers a multitude of sins, which is to say these things are crucial to the health of the body of Christ. I want you to notice... Our ability to serve one another comes from God's grace. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Every follower of Christ has received a gift which they should use to serve one another. Our, whatever gifts we have are not, not for our sake, but they're for the sake of others. And yet, our gifts are different. We are to be good stewards of God's varied grace. So we've all received a gift, but not all of our gifts are the same. And then Peter goes on to divide those gifts into two categories. And, you know, Paul in some of his letters, he gets more specific, but Peter just puts them under two categories, those who speak and those who serve. Now notice, everyone has received their gift to, to serve. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. But then... Peter says some primarily minister or serve through speaking while others primarily minister through tangible acts of service. And of course, all of us at some time or another, even if you primarily serve, you're going to speak. And even if you primarily speak, you're also going to be called to serve. So look at verse 11. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So those who speak, whoever speaks, must rely on God's wisdom found in His Word. That's, that's the point, that if you're, if you're one who speaks, you have to make sure that you're speaking the words of God, which are found in the Bible. 
And those who serve must do it by relying on God's strength. Now, I said a moment ago that even if you don't primarily speak, we're all called to speak. I'm not saying that everybody's called to stand up and preach. This applies to pastors, but it applies also to the whole church. So think about how easy it is to just kind of spout off whatever our opinion is about whatever without stopping to think, what does God's Word say about this? How could I endeavor to be faithful to what He says and what I say? That's a temptation for pastors to just kind of get up and say, I just, I'm going to get this off my chest and say whatever I want to say without really regard for what God says in His Word. But that is just as much a temptation for people who never stand behind a pulpit. It doesn't just have to be from a pulpit. It can be in a Sunday school class. It can be just in private conversation where we just kind of spout off our opinion without stopping to say, hmm, how could, in, in what I'm about to say, how could I strive to be faithful to what God says? So that's, that's part of it. Those who speak must rely on God's wisdom found in His Word. On the other hand, how easy is it to try to serve in my own strength rather than, as Peter puts it, by the strength that God supplies? One of the primary ways we do that, so practically asking, how, what's the difference between serving and serving by the strength that God supplies? The primary way that we serve by the strength God supplies is through prayer, through that dependence on the Lord, where we acknowledge to Him that whatever strength that I have to serve comes from you. So those who speak have to lean on God's wisdom through His Word, and those who serve have to lean on God's strength through prayer. Why? Look at the end of verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God is glorified when it is clear that those who speak depend on His wisdom and those who serve depend on His strength through prayer. So God gives the grace and He gets the glory. We receive grace from Him to serve others, and then when we do that, He is glorified because of it. So when you boil it all down, what God expects of us is so ordinary. Prayer, Scripture, fellowship. That's it. Those are the things that God tells us to do by His grace, for His glory. That's how you live in light of the end of all things. What, what I'm convicted by is the fact that often we're tempted to let our priorities be everything but those things. It's easy to get distracted or to think that we need something more explosive. We, 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 we feel like we need something more spiritual than those ordinary things. We think we need this, some kind of powerful experience or we need some kind of creative program. And as, as a church, it's tempting to try to, to, to make the experience more powerful or to make the program better when what God calls us to do is to be formed day by day by these virtues and these habits, self-control, sober-mindedness, love, hospitality, service, prayer, the Bible, and the people of God. So the question then that I want to leave us with this morning is, 
How much do our priorities, how much do your priorities line up with this? Who are you allowing to, to shape your virtues and habits? Who are you allowing to tell you, here's what is really important? All of us are being discipled all the time, whether we realize it or not. We're, being, we're having our virtues and our habits molded by the news, by social media, by our peers, by our friends and family and so on, so much so that we hear God tell us things like be sober-minded, be self-controlled, love one another, be hospitable to one another, pray, stay faithful to the Word, all those kind of things, and that stuff sounds boring. We think, yeah, okay, but surely there's got to be something more. That, if we think that, that's not an indictment of God. It's a reflection of how much our virtues and our habits and our priorities have been shaped by people and things other than the one in whom all wisdom rests. So the question is, who are we going to listen to? Are we going to, to look for some kind of quick fix, some kind of you know, jolt? Or are we going to allow God to set the priorities? Who's going to shape our virtues and our habits? The world or some leadership guru or whoever it may be or the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who made us, the one who sent his son to redeem us the one who has given us his spirit to carry out what he's called us to do. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in a moment, an opportunity to respond to God's word. And uh, yeah, so the question is, where are your priorities? And how much do your priorities look like God's priorities? How much do your habits and the, the, the things that you're pursuing in your life, how much do they look like what God tells us to do in His Word? Um, let me pray for us and ask the Lord to help us today. God, we thank You for Your patience with us. Lord, that even when You've spoken so clearly and told us what You expect of us, so often we're, we're tempted to go and look elsewhere and think that surely we must need more. And Lord, I pray, if nothing else today, that we would be reminded that your ways are sufficient, that your word is sufficient, that prayer is sufficient, that fellowship with other believers, these things are sufficient for us to grow in, uh, in holiness and grow in conformity to the likeness of your Son. Lord, I pray that, uh, that this very day that we would be resolved uh, to, to renew our minds in this way. God, that we would cultivate these habits um, of, of holiness. Uh, Lord, that we would strive to uh, regularly hear your word, that we would strive to regularly pray, seek your wisdom, thank you for your goodness, cast our cares upon you. And Lord, that we would be resolved regularly to be around your people who sharpen us, who encourage us, uh, and who help to bear our burdens with us. And Lord, I pray as well that you would open our eyes today to see those around us, whether it's others within our church or just others that we encounter in our lives uh, who are going through various things that we could reach out to and show love to, hospitality, openness toward, and that we could find some way 
uh, to serve them, whether it's in a tangible way or whether it's by speaking uh, words of encouragement, um, words of truth to them. So, Lord, open our eyes. Help us to look beyond ourselves, to look to others and to look to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.